traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. I'd like to give a little context to the episode that we're going to be discussing tonight. Only a short passage from Wikipedia, just to give us an idea of what we're looking at. The Cuban Revolution was an armed revolt conducted by Fidel Castro's 26th of July movement and its allies against the right-wing authoritarian government of the Cuban president, Batista. The revolution began in 1953 and continued sporadically until the rebels finally ousted Batista on January 1st, 1959, replacing his government with a revolutionary socialist state. The 26th of July movement later reformed along communist lines, becoming the Communist Party in October 1965. Now further to this, something that was so very important in American history is the Cuban Missile Crisis. In July 1962, the Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, having hung on to power after buying the car in The Whole Truth, reached a secret agreement with Fidel Castro to place Soviet nuclear missiles in Cuba to deter any invasion attempts. So the early 60s were a very volatile time, it's obviously a lot more to it than that. But Rod Sailing is clearly putting his two cents worth in on this whole situation with his would-be Castro, Clemente. What makes a man drunk? Wine or that mob screaming his name? I'm going to make a toast to you. I'm going to toast my friends. To Cristo, the bold one. To D'Alessandro, the dedicated one. To Tabar, the quiet one. To Garcia, the strong one. To the four lieutenants of the revolution. To the new heads of the government. I always feel a little bad for Cristo there. Does he get called the bold one or the bold one? Because the rest get really great compliments like strong and dedicated. He just gets bald. But when we first meet our five main players, it's mission accomplished for them. They've taken control of the government. But one of Clemente's first lines is what really sets the scene. What makes a man drunk? Wine or that mob screaming his name? Is that what power should really be about? Basking in the glory of your name being screamed by a mob. We're tackling big themes here that will take more than just some fake beards and military uniforms to pull off. So can Rod Sailing make it happen? Let's find out by looking into the mirror. This is the face of Ramos Clemente. A year ago, a beardless, nameless worker of the dirt who plotted behind a mule, furrowing someone else's land. Then he looked up at a hot Central American sun and he pledged the impossible. He made a vow that he would lead an avenging army against the tyranny that put the ache in his back 
and the anguish in his eyes. And now, one year later, the dream of the impossible has become a fact. In just a moment, we will look deep into this mirror and see the aftermath of a rebellion in the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on October 20th, 1961. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Don Medford. Not a great deal to say about Rod Serling's opening narration because it's not given us some half cryptic, half poetic comment on anything really. It's actually just given us backstory. And I'm sure there are some elements of backstory in a lot of his opening narrations, but this one is just all backstory. As originally scripted, his opening narration was longer. It went like this. This is Ramos Clemente who once had a dream. He walked behind a mule furrowing up someone else's land and then looked up at a hot Central American sun and pledged the impossible. He made a vow that he would lead an avenging army against the tyranny that had put the ache in his back, the lines in his face, the anguish in his eyes. And one year later, the dream of the impossible had become a fact. He rode at the head of an army into capital city cheered along the way by thousands of other dreamers who had an illusion that General Clemente would give them back their freedom. An honest mistake, but even honest mistakes must be paid for. In just a moment, Clemente, his lieutenants, and all of you will look deep into this mirror and see the ugly reflection of a very common species of men who begin by consecrating their lives to freedom and then forget what they were looking for. We're about to see the aftermath of a rebellion in the Twilight Zone. So the director on this one is Don Medford, who we have met before, but this is right in the middle of his five-episode Twilight Zone run. So we have met him before in the Twilight Zone podcast, but we've not met him in the Twilight Zone podcast presented by me. Luke actually covered his first two episodes from the beginning of season two, A Passage for Trumpet, and the man in the bottle. So if you'll forgive a little repetition, Don was born in Detroit, Michigan in 1917. So this would have been his hundredth year. Although he has passed now, he lived to a good age of 95 and died quite recently in 2012. Now he earned the nickname Midnight Medford on the film The Organization when he shot the opening scenes in daylight using various tricks to make it seem like it was actually nighttime, and those tricks were what he became famous for because he used them several times in other projects. And he kept on working on many shows until the 1980s, but the thing that stands out to me most in his resume is the first thing on his resume, the early 1950s precursor to The Twilight Zone, Tales of Tomorrow. Now, he directed a staggering 36 episodes of the show, so almost half of its run. Now, I don't know if the elements exist to make such a thing possible, but I would really love to see Tales of Tomorrow cleaned up and restored to its best possible state. There is a great jump in quality from Tales of Tomorrow to The Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone is a much slicker product and Tales of Tomorrow just doesn't look as good, but I still think it's a very important show. It is part of the landscape of this incredibly fertile time in science fiction in America in the 1950s. 
Episodes of note include the original version of What You Need, which would later be adapted for The Twilight Zone, and Don Medford directed an adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein for the show, which starred Lon Chaney Jr. as the monster, a role he'd previously played for Universal in the 1942 film The Ghost of Frankenstein. So in the two seasons of Tales of Tomorrow, there were 85 episodes, so it was one of those shows that had ridiculously large number of episodes in the season, and I would love to see them restored, but there are a lot of them out there to enjoy online at the moment. In our story here, the former leader, General de Cruz, played by Will Kaluva, is brought in and Clemente rails on him for his mistreatment of the populace, taking the bread from the mouths of peasants and so on, until de Cruz makes this reply. Greasy pay, huh? He's to be judged, not tormented. He is the animal. And you are not, huh? <laughs> you are the purists, eh? the saviors, the avenging angels, eh? <laughs> Gentlemen, you will soon be disillusioned. You are me. You are the Cruz. You are Batista, you are Castro, you are Trujillo, you are the keepers of the grab bags. Oh, you can wave your flags and put up your statues and embrace all the people, from the oldest to the youngest, but we are all the same breed. We are the spoilers. We care for no one. No one but ourselves. Here is one of our main themes then, and Rod Sailing spelled that out a bit more in his originally scripted opening narration. While Clemente says he has these very noble reasons for doing what he's done, now that he's in power, De Cruz says that the power will eventually corrupt him. They're all the same, but as well as power, he has inherited fear. Fear of assassination, rebellion, disloyalty. Clemente has brought all of these things to the table with this rebellion, and now he has to sit at that table. I see you have found my mirror too. An old woman brought it to me, ten years ago when I'd first taken over. She said it was magic. She said, by looking into it, I could see the faces of my assassins. <laughs> that is right. Look deep, Geno Clemente. Find out who your assassins are. You will see them in that mirror. You will see them in the mirror, in the dark corners. You will see them in the crowd. You will see them everywhere. Often in the Twilight Zone, the magic that affects the character does come from some item, but it's not always the case that we find out the lore behind the item, or even have a character say that the item is magical. They usually just discover it. But here we have the Cruz doing both of those things. He tells us that this is a magical item. He tells us where he got it, and what it's supposed to do. Now, Granted, he could have just been saying this to try and plant doubt into Clemente's head after his speech, but 
I actually think he was genuine. He was genuinely saying what this mirror does. But I don't think personally that this needed to be said. We could have had Clemente looking into the mirror and seeing one of his followers with a gun pointed at him and then turning round to see it gone and we would have completely understood what it was all about. All we did need was De Cruz's speech about fear to understand that this paranoia is now starting to take hold of Clemente. By not having De Cruz say, hey this is a magic mirror, then you have some ambiguity there about whether it's actually magic or not, or whether it's just all in Clemente's head. I'm going to pause a moment to credit the four gentlemen who played Clemente's followers. Anthony Carboni, Arthur Batanides, Rodolfo Hyos Jr. and Richard Carlin. Now, I'm not going to do bios on them because they're actually quite small roles in the scheme of things, and... Each man had a very similar career, just regular TV and movie actors who appeared to have worked regularly in small roles without having any real landmark ones. And they're fine, but they just don't really get that much to do apart from line up to be slaughtered, basically. It's really the Peter Fork show who we'll speak about in a moment. So things ramp up pretty quickly, and Clemente orders the execution of all of the prisoners in the city which starts to build dissatisfaction among his men. And then he looks into the mirror. A mirror that reflects the faces of my assassins. Isn't that intriguing? Isn't that intriguing, Delisandro? You know, I had no idea that some... What's you? What's you? Ramos. No, I saw you. Ramos, what, what's the matter? I saw you in the mirror. I saw you with a gun. What gun? Ramos, you, you sound like some some demented man. Well, it would have to be you. I should have known that it would be you, you moralist, you dedicated one. It would have to be you. I know that. And there goes D'Alessandro over the balcony. So De Cruz is played by Peter Falk, and of course we all know him most for Columbo. But where was he in his career at this time? Well, the character of Columbo had actually appeared on television already by this point in a television anthology series called The Chevy Mystery Series, in an episode called Enough Rope, which may or may not refer to Columbo's usual M.O. of giving a murderer enough rope to hang themselves with. But in this, it wasn't actually Peter Fork who played him, it was an actor called Bert Fried. So Fork wasn't the first person to play Columbo, and he wasn't even the second. In 1962, Thomas Mitchell played Columbo in a stage play which starred Twilight's own actress Agnes Moorhead as the murder victim. It wasn't until seven years after the mirror that Fork first played the role in 1968. Columbo would then become a staple throughout his life, but what I do find very sad is he wanted to do one final Columbo episode in 2007 as a send-off for the character, but sadly the funding was refused and while that kind of wrangling went on, 
Peter was sadly diagnosed with dementia and unable to do it anymore, and he died in 2011 at the age of 83. He was born in New York in 1927 and had his eye removed when he was three years old due to cancer. And he actually came to acting quite late after work in different jobs. And his first screen credit is in 1957 when he was about 30 years old. So when he came to the Twilight Zone, he was one of our jobbing TV actors working hard to make his mark. So he'd have been about 34 years old here. I do love Peter Falk, mainly but not exclusively for Columbo. I'd probably watch him in anything, he has such a great presence. And over the years I've read reviews of this episode and they seem to range from he's either great in this or he's completely overacting in this. Mark Zickri says that this is not one of his shining moments and he rants, raves and struts through a superficial portrayal. I find it hard to criticise him too much though. Yes, he's done better work, but he's having to carry an episode here that focuses more or less directly on him and takes place in one room. You know, the story doesn't go anywhere else. There's no movement to the whole thing. It's very stagey and he has to fill that screen and create the atmosphere. So on the basis of his performance, I'm okay with it. You know, whether he should have played it in the first place because he's a New York actor playing a Central American, there's definitely a conversation to be had there, you know, because it happened then and it still happens now. But the interesting thing is, Fork was actually contracted to do two further Twilight Zones, but unfortunately, he didn't do any more. Why are they so quiet? They scream for justice, and when you give it to them, they're suddenly bored. Like an audience at a cheap burlesque, the entertainment must be varied. Every five minutes must be a costume change. But I know them very well. You fill their stomachs and you empty their brains. They have cheap taste and short memories. What's the matter, Taban? Is there something that's sitting heavy on you? That. That sits heavy on me. That is what sits heavy on me. And the death of a man who was my friend. That puts a hook into my heart. Did he sunroof? An assassin. And that is the worst lie of all. So Clemente is now speaking with disdain about the people who he was supposed to be championing and the prophecy of the cruise is starting to come true. Now the gentleman who played Tabal in that clip is Arthur Batanides and in an interview with Starlog that Martin Graham's Jr. documents in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, he says Peter Falk's character was based loosely on Fidel Castro. It was at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. At one point, we all had to leave the studio dressed in our Latin American outfits. Since there was a lot of anti-Castro bias at the time, we felt insecure walking around the streets in these uniforms. It was definitely not the time to be running around looking like one of Castro's men. I thought someone might run us down. Now, as far as commentary on the rest of the episode, I'm not really going to touch on it too much because for the one part, there's really not much written in terms of trivia for this show. And also, I think it plays out in quite a predictable way. You know, each of the men getting dispatched one by one 
until it's just Clemente left. He becomes more paranoid and makes more and more horrific decisions, dealing out death to anyone who he thinks opposes him, including his own men. But who is the ultimate enemy of the dictator? Well, it takes the return of Vladimir Sokolov, who played the father in Dust, this time playing Father Tomas, to tell us who that is. Father, I can't stand it. I can't live like this. I'm frightened. From morning till night, from night till morning, I hold my breath and I keep looking in back of me to see if there's something. I want to know why do I have so many enemies? This is the story of all tyrants, General. They have but one real enemy. And this is the one they never recognize until too late. So Clemente takes his own life, and as I said, in terms of trivia and even commentary on this episode, in the books I have, not much really exists. Both Zikri and Graham's entries are quite short, and even the Douglas Brodie book, Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone, doesn't include this episode, and he has a section devoted to the more political episodes of the Twilight Zone. So if we consider how political this one is, it really wears its politics on its sleeve. It maybe speaks to how this is quite an easy episode to pass by. I don't necessarily think it's a bad episode, but it is the very definition of the okay episode that you have on in the background during the Twilight Zone marathon while you go and stock up on drinks and snacks for the next really good one. I do like to try and dig into the less talked about episodes because the most talked about ones have been talked about so much. But this one, I don't think really clicks with me. Perhaps it's because I am so removed by time and location from this time in American history that may speak more to all of you than it does to me. But I actually think it's more than that. In The Twilight Zone Companion, Buck Houghton said, this was our impression of Castro at that time. He was a very flamboyant Latin, which Peter isn't. It goes back to all those banana boat republic stronger on men. And then he goes on to say, I think we had a fairly simplistic view of Castro at that time. When we think of Rod Serling's politics, I imagine that the overthrowing of a bloated and wasteful dictator would be something he would agree with. So perhaps it's the method that he disagrees with instead of a political solution, a forceful solution, and then the replacement of a dictator with just another dictator. You know, admittedly, I'm no expert on the situation in Cuba, but I'm not sure it was just quite that simple. Apparently, originally, Rod Serling's script called for this to take place over months, but if that was to happen, to me, that robs the episode of one of the things that I do like about it and, essentially, what makes it the Twilight Zone. By Rod Serling's estimation, if you take power in this way, by the gun, then you will forever be looking over your shoulder because you've set that precedent and the likelihood is that it will happen to you too when someone doesn't like what you're doing. But if you have that story happening over a period of months, then it is just the story of a dictator and his downfall, because that's how it happened anyway in Rod Serling's estimation. So to do it that way, the mirror itself essentially becomes pointless. 
But what the episode does do is by dropping this mirror into the mix on the first night of Clemente's rise to power, it shows us that Twilight Zone ripple effect. It gives form to Clemente's paranoia and it speeds up the process of what Rod Serling saw as the inevitable outcome of this form of government. This is effectively Clemente's reign in microcosm as each of his followers who followed him with the best of intentions become disillusioned with him and his actions. The mirror makes it happen that much quicker, but Sailing thinks that it's inevitable anyway. So I enjoy that aspect of it, but whether you agree with Castro's politics and methods or not, perhaps one of the things that taints this episode is that Sailing was wrong. Yes, there were numerous assassination attempts against Castro, allegedly several of them by the CIA, but he lived to be 90 years old with the political regime that he established still in place. As I said earlier, my knowledge of Cuba and Castro is limited and I'd need to read a great deal more on the subject to really get a handle on it. One of Rod Serling's great talents was usually to distill either the human condition or social and political happenings into these fabulistic tales with a definite point of view. But perhaps this was one that was a little too complex, even for the Twilight Zone. The last assassin, and they never learn. They never seem to learn. Ramos Clemente, a would-be god in dungarees strangled by an illusion. That will-of-the-wisp mirage that dangles from the sky in front of the eyes of all ambitious men, all tyrants. And any resemblance to tyrants living or dead is hardly coincidental, whether it be here or in the Twilight Zone. So, perhaps a little bit of a shorter review this time round, because, like I said, there wasn't really much information about it out there. I think it is maybe a bit of a passed over episode of the Twilight Zone. You know, and I, I don't see I don't think anything's majorly wrong with it. It's still enjoyable. I wouldn't put it in the bad pile, but definitely a middling one for me. But luckily we have someone to add a bit more comment on it in submitted for your approval. Longtime friend of the show, Uncommon NASA, has sent us a clip. So let's check that out. So the mirror is interesting. I don't usually disagree with the masses on which ones are the quote unquote bad ones. But I haven't seen I'm not sure what your opinion was on this yet, Tom, because I haven't heard your episode, but I, I, I haven't seen an episode that has been maligned as much as this one that I really like as much as this one. It could be partly because I'm such a geopolitical nerd that I I really dig these sorts of topics. You know, I think that there's a quote, the famous Lord Acton quote, which is absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
And I think that this was really well played in this episode. Uh, I would think that, you know, I would guess maybe that was the core message. And that was sort of what Serling was getting at. I think there's a few things about this episode before I get to some of the casting issues. I think, you know, you have to kind of remember the, the point of where this was written. And I think there were lots of things like this going on in the world, and there still are today, where you've got sort of corrupt leaders being replaced by corruptible leaders. And obviously he was making direct reference to Cuba here, but I don't think that he limited it to Cuba because he wasn't addressing that specifically. You know, it was something that could be applied to any country in the world or even the United States. And I think that was really his point. That's why it really hit home to me. And in terms of like the set design, the casting, in terms of like the 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 quality of the acting. I felt like this was one episode that could have been stretched out. This could have been a full-length, you know, political drama the way Seven Days of May was. Each of his lieutenants and even the dictator that he disposed, like in the tiny little bit of screen time that they had, in my opinion, were able to flesh out as full a character or role or personality, however you want to say it, as you could in in such a small amount of screen time. I think the lore of the mirror itself is really cool and really interesting. I don't know if that's an original Sterling idea or if that's sort of a sort of a fable type thing that's been going on over the you know for 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 a long time within sci-fi lore but the way he did it was really cool and I think a lot of people's issue with this episode comes to the casting of Peter Falk which I don't want to tie myself certainly to the casting of white actors to play Latinos or uh, Indians or um any race other than themselves, because I, I do think that that's very wrong. But I think that was an accepted thing at the time, which doesn't make it right. I would compare this to Henry Silva in Manchurian Candidate, where at times, knowing who Peter Falk is and knowing who Henry Silva is, it's fairly ridiculous. But as ridiculous as it is that they were cast to play these roles, I think it would be wrong to fault these actors, because I think in each of these examples, You've got somebody that's really delivering the lines in the best way possible. I think more so Peter Falk than even Henry Silva. I just think that Peter Falk crushed it. And I'd read somewhere that, I'm not sure where I read this, that Peter Falk was uh, was signed on to do more episodes, but I guess they never really found another role for him. I would have loved to have seen him in more Twilight Zones. But I guess the, the, the point of why I really wanted to speak in is because you know, Tom, I didn't know what you were going to say. I don't know whether you're going to like it or not, but I, I do want to represent somebody either, you know, opposite of yourself or in addition to yourself that does like this episode. Um, I, I really count it as one of probably, I definitely count it on the top end, you know, the top side. If you were to split all the episodes in half, I would probably put it toward the top quarter personally. I, I really enjoy when this comes on on the holidays. And um, I just think, you know, watching the story evolve and watching each of his lieutenants kind of get taken down one by one and the set design, everything happens in that one room, but your mind is painting these images of the lieutenants getting shot down at the gate and the crowd down on the street cheering. There's just such vivid imagery that was never shown to you, and I think it's brilliant that he was able to pull that off, uh, or the directors and the screenwriters were able to to pull that off in a 20-something minute black-and-white feature. I think it's great. So that's my two cents. Thanks, Tom. 
Thanks for that, NASA. Give us a bit of food for thought on the mirror. You know, a couple of interesting things for me. Thank you for verbalizing so well the whole issue of casting Peter Falk in the role of a different race. You know, it's a very sensitive kind of issue, and I think you verbalized it very well, better than I could. I kind of skipped over it. I also really like that you dig this obviously a lot more than me but that's why i love getting people's thoughts on the show because you know fandom can be so toxic out there when people disagree about things and i just think god why why does that have to be the case you know and it's always been the case on the twilight zone podcast with people who write in that we have this dialogue in a very adult way because why shouldn't we you know it's always been the case that people don't always agree with me and i like when people come on and say you know tom thanks for your episode i actually disagree with you but here's why i'm all about that and that, that's good that we can do that in this way so you obviously like this more than me nasa which is which is fine and and i'm glad that you represented it for the people who probably do agree with you so I don't think our opinions are completely opposite. I'm more middling than saying it's a bad episode, but uh, yeah, you clearly like it more than me, and that's exactly why people should write into the Twilight Zone podcast and throw their two cents worth in. So thank you, NASA, and if you want to get your thoughts onto the show, then email me at tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com. If you want to connect on Twitter, the address is twilightzone.net. There's actually a Facebook page as well. It's facebook.com slash twilightzonepodcast. I'm not particularly prolific on Facebook, but, you know, it's there if anyone ever wants to comment. And, of course, if you want to support the show on Patreon, it's patreon.com slash twilightzonepodcast. And you can get all kinds of bonus content on there, including... Twilight Zone Aftermath, where I look at the 80s and 2000s Twilight Zone. So that's all from me this time. I just want to say a quick thank you to Ethan B12, who left a new iTunes review. Thank you, Ethan. He's also a contributor on Patreon, so thank you for that. And also Fayetteville Fitz, who left an iTunes review as well. So a bit of a shorter one this time round, but sometimes, you know, if that's all there is, that's all there is, and let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what's next. And now, Mr. Serling. It's traditional in the great American Western, the climax of any given story is the gun down on the main street. Next week, Montgomery Pittman's written a story in which we have our gun down and then go on from there. It's a haunting little item about a top gun as he was alive and his operation after death. This is one for rainy nights and power failures, but wherever you watch it, I think it'll leave its imprint. upswing coming. How will it affect you? To find out, write for your free booklet, Promise of America, Box 1919, New York 19.